an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he, lay, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that the Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled when it was said through the prophets that he would be called the Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I can't see if I look. <laughs> you don't, haven't heard yet? Beck just came and told me about little uh, Nathaniel Carpenter. You know Joe and Scott Carpenter, the little boy? He's been taken to hospital about 48 hours ago, difficulty breathing. And he's been in the, uh, the new hospital. Um, lady, what? Um, for the last two nights. And we're just trying to get word now to see if he's coming home today or if he's going to be staying in or not. So we might just pray for little Nathaniel and for Scott and Joe and the girls, eh? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you know the situation completely. We do pray for little Nathaniel. Thanks, Lord, for modern medicine and the cleverness of it, but ultimately you're the one who heals. So we ask you, Lord, to intervene in this young guy's life, that you would enable him to breathe independently of the oxygen um, machine, that you'd give trust and peace into Joe and Scott's heart and be with his sisters too. Um, so Lord, we commit little Nathaniel to you. And then we pray, Lord, for ourselves that you'll come and speak to us through this passage of your word uh, because Jesus is our Lord and we want to hear from him. We pray in his name. Everybody said? Matthew chapter 2 is, a, as I already indicated, a difficult passage. And I'm pretty sure Matthew's primary point is he wants us to focus upon the four prophecies that he gives. Um, I'm not doing that this morning, so in one sense I'm ignoring that which Matthew wants us to notice because <clears throat> I'm not sure if Pastor David's going to do that tonight. No, you're not either. You're wussing out too. <laughs> it's difficult to get your mind around what Matthew actually means when he says this fulfills that prophecy. It does not mean what we think it means in English, that a prophet centuries ago predicted this would happen and this is the fulfilment of it. It doesn't mean that. There's another level and meaning to the word fulfilled and to get your mind around what he's applying it to, you need to understand those Old Testament stories and then how that applies to this particular context 
And honestly, I just don't have the mental energy to engage in that with you this morning. So another time and another world. <laughs> I don't know. So I wanted to do something different. I wanted to look at this passage and I wanted to look at just three primary things about it. <clears throat> I wanted to look at Herod and what does it mean for us living in this world and particularly in the light of recent events. Uh, I then wanted to look at um, Joseph and Mary primarily, but really uh, the people who have Jesus with them, Jesus in their life, Jesus' followers. What do we learn from them? And there's a good lesson for us. And then at the end of it, the real hero of this passage, indeed of Matthew 1 and, and 2, is the person who was behind the scenes, the person who was orchestrated, the person who was at work, which is the living God himself. So we're going to finish this morning by seeing what Matthew wants us to derive theologically from this passage. So here are the three points, just in case. I know it's the end of the year and you're tired like I am, so if you drift, here are the three points that you're going to miss out on. And if you do drift, then at the end you can engage intelligently about those three points. <clears throat> Ready? Uh, the world, Herod is still in it, or the spirit of Herod is still in it. Um, for us, the followers of Jesus, if Jesus is with us, then we will certainly experience difficulties, but there are also duties and there are also delights in walking with the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly and finally, what do we learn about God from this passage? That he's involved and that he rules this world. That's basically the direction we're going to go. As I said, this is a passage that many people uh, avoid because we don't like bad news at Christmas time, do we? Hello? There's always something worse about bad news at Christmas time. If something happens at Christmas time, we think, what a bad time of the year for that to happen, simply because Christmas will bring back memories of it. So we particularly want to be sheltered from bad news and from the horrors of this world at this time, and in recent weeks we have been anything but, have we? Our news bulletins have been absolutely horrendous. And so here in this story you have Joseph, who has moved from Nazareth down to, Gal uh, down to Bethlehem. He's settled there for a while, uh, Matthew's been jumping, and you know, this is a year, maybe a couple of years into Jesus' life, uh, going on the fact that the boys are two years old and under. Can't be dogmatic about the length of time, but it's certainly months, not days. Um, Joseph has now settled into a house, he's probably got a job, he's starting to make life in this new place called Bethlehem. And then suddenly he is uh, visited again, by an angel and he's told to pack up and move, leave everything behind again. That we're moving from a passage of light, the wise men coming and the joy and celebration of that to a passage of darkness, to a passage of where um, Herod's face begins to have a shadow creep over it and there's going to be slaughter of these little boys. A horrible story. Well, what do we know firstly about this man, Herod? And then what are the implications behind this horrible, horrendous act of his? On the good side, he's a mixture of good and bad. On the good side, he was, through his rule, able to keep peace in the Middle East for something like 30 plus years. That's no mean feat. Peace in Jerusalem for three decades because of him. He was a great builder and a great economist. He built a palace in Jerusalem, built a fortress in the northwest. He rebuilt the harbour in Caesarea. He built a new town in the province of Samaria. There were new buildings popping up everywhere and he especially put a lot of money into rebuilding the temple. We've rediscovered those um, stones that he used. They're massive, 70 tons, tons. 
absolutely massive stones in the foundation place of the original temple that he was refurbishing and had been doing so in Jesus' lifetime. He started about 20, 19 BC and went all the way through into Jesus' lifetime, 30 BC, and went all the way up till about 46. Just kept going. Decades and decades and decades, millions of dollars poured into rebuilding the temple. So he was certainly, in that sense, a great builder. He could be generous. There were flashes of generosity in his reign. There were times when, uh, during a famine or very difficult times, he cancelled taxes for the year. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Tony Abbott to cancel taxes just for one year. Would you like that? Who wouldn't? Um, There was a time in a famine when he took his own gold plates out of his palace and he melted that down and got the money and he used that money to feed... Uh, to provide food, to buy for the poor. That's a pretty generous thing to do. But like I said, he's good and bad. Uh, One of his contemporaries called him a very fine beast. He was insanely jealous. He was ego-driven. And he was a cruel man. He was very unpopular with the people. Even though he did the building things and he could be generous, they were just exceptions to the general tone. He was furious at the news of the Lord Jesus being born and he's in his 70s. He's coming to the end of his life and he still hangs on to the title and the status of being the king. In fact, when he came to the throne, he killed a lot of people, which is something that his son Archelaus would likewise do. Thousands assassinated. And even in his his 70s, when he was approaching death, around about 4 BC, he had the Sanhedrin or some of the nobles of Jerusalem arrested, about 70 in all. He had moved to Jericho. And he knew that when he died, nobody would cry for him. He knew he was unpopular. And so he arrested these nobles and the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, had them locked up and gave orders that when he died, they were to be executed and that people would be crying because of them, that tears would be shed on the day he died. That was his plan. But it didn't work because when he died, they let them out, which is a sensible thing to do. Well, this man, Herod, with this mixture of personality going on behind him, He's a little bit like Pharaoh in Egypt, isn't he, with Moses. He demonstrates for us of what it's like to live in this world and that Herod can be a rather typical, not just ruler, but a typical person. But by the grace of God, there go I. We're all tainted with the same brush. We may not be as bad as him, but we are nowhere near as good as Jesus either. We are on this side of the fault line and that we have the same sinful nature um, wrestling in us and he he probably more so in an unrestrained state but here it does demonstrate for us that when our human nature is unrestrained when it's untethered when it's let loose when you have the power and the resources to do what you really want to do we are capable of doing horrific things and he kills these boys in Bethlehem how many of you wouldn't speed if there was no law against speeding if there was no penalty, if there was no fine, how many of you would drive sensibly? (laughs) There are three people who are deceived here this morning. I know, I obey the speed, the, what is it? I can't even say it, so obviously I don't obey it. I try to obey the laws of the land, the speed limit. I invariably find myself going over it and say, you, like me, I'm quite sure, when you see a police or you see red and blue lights in the distance, what do you do? (laughs) You do what I do. You slow down immediately. 
because you assume I'm going over the limit, because I often do. And I've, I've thought about this uh, lots of times. If I don't see a police, if there were no police, I know that I would not obey that law. I just know I wouldn't. But because there is a police, I do obey it. And so we need those sorts of restraints in our world because if we're capable of doing that to that little thing, then what else are we capable of? That's my point. And just to remind you of some of the horrors of the last week or so, 130 students, Pakistani students, shot, killed. In Nigeria, some schools, hundreds of girls again taken, kidnapped, some raped, some to be enslaved. What about the awful story of the siege in Sydney in the coffee shop? Or the mum in Cairns kills eight children? Or a man who, because of road rage, gets out and has a gun and shoots the perpetrator? shoots the person who upset him. That's why the Bible tells us that we need a new nature. We all have this sin nature. And that's why Jesus came. That we live in a world like with Herods. And not just Herods around us, but there is sometimes a Herod living within us. And Jesus came to save us from that. From our sin nature. He came to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be set free. He came to remove the power of sin so that we didn't have to do it anymore. We're no longer enslaved to it. Now when we sin, we do so because we choose to do so. He is in the process through what the Bible calls sanctification, this process of becoming more like Jesus, holiness. He's removing from us, or desires to remove from us, the pleasures of sin. And I trust you find that increasingly so, that that you once used to enjoy, you now find very unsatisfying. And it's God's work of grace in your life to help you say no to sin and to say yes to him and to his will and to his holiness in your life. And one day, someday, when the Lord Jesus returns and we are glorified, then he will remove from us the presence of sin. That's why Jesus came. Pay for the penalty, decrease the power, remove the pleasures and eventually remove the presence of sin from our lives. But we also know behind Herod in this world, the Bible gives us an insight that we don't wrestle just against flesh and blood that behind the scenes, behind the curtain, there is another spiritual power, a principality, an evil power. And Ephesians 6.12 says to us, you know this verse, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, behind us, in the unseen realms around us, is the evil one who is committed to tricking us and to tripping us and to deceiving us. We do believe as a church in Satan and in the demons. As God is the author of life, so Satan is the opposer of life. And both are involved and included in what goes on in our world. The killing of these baby Bethlehem boys is certainly evil. That evil perpetuates into this world, into our world. In this world, innocent life is also taken all of the time. The spirit or the attitude of Herod lingers in the world. We justify it. Some, rather, justify it. Call it legal. We call it murder. And I'm talking about abortion. We say it's illegal. Did you know that it was legal for Herod to do what he did because he was the king? He could justify it legally in the eyes of Rome. What a horrendous evil. Immoral, but legal. Great parallel for abortion in our world. There's always been two kingdoms in conflict in our world. For Herod, 
What motivated him was certainly his own ego, his own selfish needs, his own status, his own desire for comfort. And that undoubtedly motivates a lot of people in the world. But behind Herod dwells another person, this Satan, this adversary, who is fighting a spiritual battle, who knows that Jesus came to be God with us. Jesus came to save us, and so he is opposing that. And behind Herod is Satan, who tries to undermine and destroy the plan, the work of God that's going on in our world. Well, that passage reminds me that the world we live in is a fallen world, it's a broken world, and it's a world in which bad things happen, like it happened here. Jesus coming into the world and God's plan being fulfilled didn't change that. And it won't change it until Jesus comes back into the world. And then he will institute cosmic changes. Until then, we live in this overlap of the ages where evil and wickedness persists. Well, what about us living in this fallen, broken world? When we have Jesus in our life, like Mary and Joseph did, what, do we, what can we expect? Because Jesus is with us, we'll be delivered, we'll be rich and healthy and wealthy and wise? No. Will life be simple and good and safe? Not necessarily. Will we experience no suffering, no pain, no heartache? No, that's not the promise. The fact is that when we follow Jesus, when we have Jesus in our life, we can expect difficulties in this life because of the world in which we live. In fact, simply because we follow Jesus, it may increase. It did for Joseph. It did for Mary. Jesus didn't make life easier for them and necessarily for us. But he does help us to cope with the difficulties. He is with us. He does not abandon us. Somebody said many, many years ago now, it costs to follow Jesus, but it costs a whole lot more not to. That's worth thinking about. It is costly to follow Jesus. There is a sacrifice, there is self-denial, there are difficulties. But the cost of not following him are absolutely horrendous. Uh, for Joseph and Mary... There was a lot of moving in these early years. They're both teenagers, probably. I'm not sure of Joseph. Age. We're not sure of either age, but Mary, I assume, is a very young teenager. Joseph is probably either an older teenager or early 20s. They're both on the poor end of the economic scale. Joseph is a carpenter. He has a trade. He's working, and he's trying hard to provide for his new family, new wife and new child. Um, and now, with the new child coming, there are life threats. Um, he can't call the police because such a th thing doesn't exist. He can't call on the military because they're under the control of the very king who is going to kill him. Now he has to move to Egypt as a refugee and be taken in. Why Egypt? Well, it was the nearest country which is outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Yep. There were lots of Jews living there, about a million of them at the time. Yep. But there's another reason Matthew gives us, and that is to fulfill biblical prophecy, that Jesus is living out the Old Testament story of Israel, that Israel, in fact, is a pointer pointing towards Jesus, that what happened to Israel is a clue to the Lord Jesus, and Matthew can see that spiritual insight. My point is, when we follow Jesus, you can, experience, you can expect to experience difficulties, and the closer you do follow him, then the more likely that's the case. If you've been following the Lord Jesus and you haven't encountered that yet, you haven't encountered opposition, you haven't encountered any persecution or mocking, then just stay faithful, just stay true to him and you will. Because this is a fallen world and there are spiritual forces opposed to us. 
The Apostle Paul gives us a pretty discouraging list, but it's a very honest list. He doesn't pretend. In fact, in this letter to Corinthians that he writes to and is answering, there are some super spiritual people, uh, professing Christians or apostles, who are going around saying that when you have Jesus in your life, everything is smoothed out and everything is you can expect not just miracles you can expect God's provision and immediate answers to prayer and you can expect life to be a whole lot easier this is Paul's response to that he um this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11 he identifies himself with them firstly by race and then by belief both servants of Christ and then he goes on to sort of boast about the things that have happened to him since he followed Jesus you will know the list He said, I've worked harder, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, I've been exposed to death again and again. It's a a great list. If you want Jesus and to have all these things in your life, just accept Jesus. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Five times. He's a slow learner. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the open sea. Um, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labelled and torn and gone without sleep. I've been hungry, thirsty, and I've even gone without food, and I've been cold and naked. Following Jesus did that to him. And Paul is saying, normal. That's normal. And what I'm saying to you that out of this Matthew 2 passage, we are reminded of that truth, that when we follow Jesus, it will introduce us to some difficulties. We should expect it. We should do all we can to cope with it, prayer and everything else. But we ought not to be discouraged or to feel or to conclude that God has abandoned us. He hasn't promised us a smooth ride, but he has promised us a safe landing. Life is going to be hard for followers of the Lord Jesus and the more faithful we are, the more you will experience that. It'll be harder in ministry, harder in business, harder in families and friendships. It could be harder financially. It could even be harder spiritually. Why? Because there is a systemic resistance. There is opposition. And he hates us because he hates Jesus. So you can expect difficulties. What else can you expect? Well, there are duties there are things that God requires of us and Joseph is a marvellous example of us. If you read through Matthew 1 and 2, you'll find that God is speaking to Joseph every time he does, often in a dream and often from an angel. Every time, Joseph obeys. Joseph is a guy who listens. In fact, he doesn't say much. We're not recorded anything that he actually said. No words come out of his mouth recorded in the scriptures. But he is a doer. God tells him to do something and he does it. And that's the expectation. That's the portrait of a godly follower of Jesus. Someone who says, yes, Lord. Regardless of the inconvenience, regardless of the time. Here he is, settled into Bethlehem, got a house, probably got a job. And God comes along and says, leave it immediately. Get up in the middle of the night and move straight away. And he does so. And takes Mary and Joseph with them. This is what led Spurgeon, (coughs) Charles Haddon Spurgeon, to make the comment. He said, may I, like Joseph, always be obedient to any hint from the throne. Any hint from the throne. What does God want me to do in my life? Let me respond to it. And God does speak into our lives. Not every day, not all the time. But often. And usually, perhaps, when we're not expecting it. 
And we, like Joseph, God expects and desires us to be compliant, obedient. And I believe, I think, generalisation, God speaks to us far more than we hear. Because we're so distracted by life's busyness and the noise of other things. That's why it's so important to tune out and tune in. Tune the world out and listen to our Heavenly Father. What can you expect when you follow the Lord Jesus? You can expect difficulties. You can expect duty. He wants you to be an obedient follower. There are five people in the, in the Mandarin congregation getting baptised today, which will be just lovely, won't it, in the rain? I suggested they just stand outside and if we get a heavy downpour, can that count as baptism? Just for today? Would that be all right? Uh, no, we're going down to the pool and they'll be completely immersed. What else can you expect if you follow the Lord Jesus in this fallen world? Well, you can expect his presence, his promises and his blessing. His blessing may not come in the ways that I have already indicated, but there will be the sense of his presence, of his smile, that he, will be, he is a God who will resource you, that he'll provide for you, that there will be times when he will step in and he will protect you from harm. There will be times when he doesn't, as we'll learn in a moment. But he always has a reason we trust behind that. You'll experience his guiding hand and his redirecting of your path. You'll experience his inner peace and a sense of contentment. Most of all, you'll experience his sense of pleasure, his smile on your life. I love that Eric Liddell quote when he is running and his sister Jenny is concerned that he's becoming so obsessed with running and exercise and the Olympics that he's going to avoid or walk away from his call on God's life to be a missionary go to China. To which his reply to her is, Jenny, 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 God who made me, when he made me, he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's a great quote, isn't it? That sense of pleasing God. That's a blessing that God gives to us as we walk in obedience to him. It's a blessing that he can withdraw from us if we walk in disobedience. Somebody asked William Temple, Bishop William Temple one day, does God have favourites? To which Archbishop Temple said, no, God doesn't have any favourites, but he does have intimates. He does have those who love him and who are very close to him and he shares things with them that he doesn't share with others. He doesn't have favourites, but he does have intimates. Those who make the response in their life to draw near to him, he will draw near to them. But the ball's in our court, not his court. So what have we looked at this morning? We've looked at what does it mean to live in this world with Herod? Well, Herod is still in it. And bad things will happen because there is a spiritual force behind the Herods of this world. We've looked at Mary and Joseph. What does it mean if he is in our life? Well, there'll be difficulties. There are duties. But there are also delights that God is with us through life's journey. And then thirdly, and I think importantly, what does this passage teach us about the Lord? The real hero of this chapter is not Joseph or Mary. It's not the wise men or the angels. The real hero is the Lord himself. He's there, behind the scenes, just off stage, directing, calling the scenes, actively involved, fulfilling that which he has orchestrated, his plan coming into fruition. 
You know, there are seven theologi- uh, there are 12 theological truths I can get out of chapters 1 and 2. This morning I'm going to give you seven. You ready? Here we go, very quickly. Number one, God knows our plans. Matthew 2.13. The Lord knows that Herod was going to plan to kill him. Sends an angel to Joseph, get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You can't sneak anything past God. He knows all things and he knows your plans and he knows the plans of others. He's an all-knowing God. Number two, he guides. Usually, not always, but usually one step at a time. He waits for you to be obedient, then he'll give you the next step. He'll wait for you to be obedient, then he'll give you the next step. I haven't experienced the Lord telling me that that's what's going to happen. You're going to end up over there, so here is the first step. He just, my experience is he tells me that step. And as I obey it, then I get the next step. And that's our job, to follow him. That's what Joseph does in this passage. Chapter 1, he's told to marry Mary, and he does. Chapter 2, he's told to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt, and he does. He's told to stay in Egypt, and he does. He's told to return, and he does. He goes to Jerusalem, and he goes, whoops, not here, and the angel says, excuse me, go to uh, Nazareth, and he does. One step at a time. That's how you can expect God to be leading you, likewise, in your life. One step at a time. And he will tell you as you require it and need to know it. And perhaps that's true for you. Perhaps in your life right now, you're wondering, do I need to change my job? Do I buy that car? Do I buy that house? What do I do? Lord, what's the white way for me to go? We'll keep seeking his face and he will indicate to you what he wants. And my advice to you is, if you are moving in this direction and you're asking God, Lord, do I go over there or do I go over there? Just keep moving in the direction that you are already going. And then let God redirect you when it's necessary. Don't stop. Don't come to a point where you stop moving and stop deciding and making choices in your life because you don't know which one God wants you to do. I invariably get to the point in my life where I say to the Lord, Lord, unless I hear from you otherwise, that's what I'm going to do. And I make the decision accordingly. And God is more than capable as my loving Heavenly Father to intervene and to speak to me and to redirect, to close doors and and so on. So he loves us, he has a plan, he's working it out and he guides us. Number three, he not only knows all things and he guides us according to his plan and will, he communicates. He is the creator and he is primarily concerned with a relationship with us and a relationship is built upon communication. In chapters one and two of Matthew, you will find God communicating through angels in dreams. Does he still do that? Of course he does, and of course he can. He speaks through his creation. In Matthew 2, it's the star. Can he do that? Of course he can. He can still do it through the heavens. He can do it through circumstances in your life. But primarily, dreams and creation and circumstances of life will invariably all be pointing us towards the scriptures, which is the primary way that he communicates to us. That's why he gave us this book that's why he inspired it that's why he has preserved it so that we can learn lessons about him and from him about how he works in the world the principle is just like the wise man he is willing to give light to those who seek and who are willing to obey that which he says to them god is more than willing to lead if we are willing to be led one step at a time so this year i'll say this again undoubtedly on vision sunday focus sunday This year, next year, 2.15, let's be committed to God and to his word and to his communication to us primarily through the scriptures. To be Bible readers, Bible students, Bible scholars, Bible memorizers, 
Bible intakers, read his word and always be open to his spirit who might want to speak to you through another believer or through life's circumstances or through life's heartaches. He can speak in all sorts of ways. Number four, God keeps his word. He's given us his word and he is a God who is 100% faithful. He reveals his will and he's committed and loyal and faithful to it. He sticks to it. No word of God shall ever be shaken, will never fall to the ground. If he said it, he will do it. That's what he's like. That's both a warning but also an encouragement. That's a warning to anybody who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus, to any who are ungodly, to those who are outside the kingdom. God has said there will come a day when he will call you to account. There will come a day of judgment, a day when you will be held to account for the way and the choice the way you've lived and the choices you've made he said he would and he will be warned just because god hasn't struck you yet doesn't mean that he won't as the puritans used to say god strikes slow but surely it's a warning but it's also a great encouragement to those who follow the lord jesus that what he said he would do he will do he will come He is preparing a place. He will save us. He will deliver us. He keeps his word. Number five, this passage tells me that God is actively involved in our world. He's not simply transcendent, removed from us. He is imminent. He is involved. He is present. He is reachable. He's active. You can see that in Matthew 1 through the genealogy that God is working his plan out and he'll fulfill his plan to bring Jesus into the world. I like the illustration, I like playing chess. And God is the master chess player. It doesn't matter what move you make, he knows all of the options and all of the best moves that he can make as a counter move. He's given us a will and a freedom, he's given us free will. It doesn't matter what choices you make, he knows which counter moves to make to achieve his purposes. Herod can't stop God achieving his purposes in the world. God can move and does move. There was a man last century whose name was Joseph Stalin, an atheist, who threatened to wipe out Christianity from Russia. Well, the reality is Stalin is gone and Christianity is strong in Russia. The Lord is involved. He is the master chess player. He sees all options and responds accordingly. There was a song, I don't know the the full name of it, but there's a line in that goes like this. Let me sing it to you. It's a fallen, cruel world that we live in. (laughs) I was going to sing it, but I can see that I'm not appreciated for my singing. It says, and now you'll be singing it for the rest of this service, I'm sure, every move you make, every step you take, someone is watching you. Do you know that song? Every move we make, every step we take, he's watching and he's alert. And there'll be times he'll say, don't do that. And there'll be times he'll say, you forgot this. Got in the car this morning, rushed out of the house to get down here, got up over the hill, exiting our estate, and suddenly remembered baptism. I had to go back to the house to get my towel and shorts and change of shirt and all that stuff. Was that me remembering? Or was that the Holy Spirit just prompting me? 
Well, I like to think it's the Holy Spirit who was prompting me. And there are many times like that. I wonder how many times we get a prompting. He's very gentle, isn't he? He's very softly spoken. You've got to be really tuned in. You've got to be listening. And if you're distracted by other things, it's easy to miss. He's a God who was involved in our world. That's the point. Two more. Number six, he's a God who hides himself. For now, in this world, he hides himself. Not in heaven, but in this world, in this creation. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He's more than capable of doing so, but he chooses not to. He's like the stage manager. He's off in the wings to the side, like in the book of Esther. And he works gently, silently, quietly, to the point where we can even think he's not there when he is. Where people can ignore him or, like Herod, they can oppose him until one day he'll step out from behind the curtain He'll re-enter the world and then it'll be very clear that he is not only real but he is powerful and that he is sovereign Lord and then he will demand that which is his right, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and acknowledge that he is Lord and then they'll be giving an account of all that they have done in the body. He's a God who hides himself for the moment. So you can experience as you follow him that there'll be times in our life when he is hidden, silent, The ancients called it the dark night of the soul, and it happens. But be committed to follow him anyway. The greatest example I know of that is Mother Teresa, who if you read her book, she'll talk about how he was silent and hidden for decades, but she followed on. In the absence of any encouragement from the Lord's presence in her life, She was selfless and obedient. Remarkable example. Following him, even when he is hidden. And I'm sure sometimes, this is Spurgeon, he says this, that sometimes the Lord hides himself from us in order to expose our hearts. Do we really want him? Do we go looking for him, searching for him, yearning for him? Sometimes he seems to withdraw himself in order to draw us to him. Sometimes he withholds blessing from us in order that we will bend our knees and cry out to him, indicating our reliance upon him. I'm not sure if that's what's going on in your life. Number seven and finally, and relevant to where we started, that this passage reminds us that God is a God who allows the innocent to suffer. I don't understand it. I don't get it. And I don't think he likes it, but he allows it. He knows and he allows for evil in this world. I know part of that is because he's given us free will, freedom of choice. And if our freedom is real, then we have the freedom to choose badly. And we have the freedom to hurt others. That's part of the deal. That's part of the risk. That's not the full answer. That's part of the answer. And God has included that somehow in his plan. He's a God who allows the innocent to suffer. He allows a mum to kill eight children. He allows 130 students in Pakistan to be shot. He allows it. Could have stopped it, but he didn't. Sometimes he will protect and shield us. Sometimes he doesn't. 
And the Bible talks about both. And during the times when he doesn't, that's the hard times. And they're the times that we have to hang on. That though I don't know why, I know him. And I trust him that he has a purpose for it. Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Those three guys who got thrown into the fiery furnace. Before they got thrown into the fiery furnace, they make this statement to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. O king, there is a God in heaven who is all-powerful and he can deliver us from your hand. We will not bow the knee. But if he doesn't, but if he doesn't, see, they weren't sure. Would God protect us? Would he deliver us? Or wouldn't he? Well, either way, whether he does or whether he doesn't, throw us in, don't throw us in, we're not bowing the knee. We're going to follow him. We're going to be obedient to him. That's the point. In the midst of horrible things happening, hang on to him. God knows our plans. God guides us in his way. God communicates his will. He's a God who keeps his word. He is actively involved in our world, working out his plan. He's a God who hides himself. And for the moment, he is a God who allows the innocent to suffer. This world that we live in still has Herod living in it. As we follow Jesus in this world, we will experience difficulties, we have duties, and we can experience the delights of his presence. But finally, our God is the God who rules and will have his way in this world. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, for Jesus and for your spirit. Thank you for these truths that we've been reminded of this morning. And I pray, Heavenly Father, your spirit might take some of these truths and apply them to each of our hearts and to that which we need to hear to apply, that we might seek you, draw near to you and walk faithfully with you. We are grateful, Lord, that you are on the throne, that you're a loving, caring God, that you're working your purposes out. I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to be faithful through to the end of this year and strongly into next year. And we pray this so that Jesus might be glorified in us and through us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.